Well, if I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Christ the King. We're just glad that you're here. I want to welcome everybody here at the Bellingham campus. Those of you that are watching at any of our other campuses, we're glad that you're here. We've been doing a series talking about the simple beginnings of a first century movement that ultimately became known as the church. And I know over the last couple of weeks, we have covered a ton of history And I just want to say that I appreciate how you guys have rolled through it. I mean, some of you, you hated history in school, and you still hate history. And so the fact that we've actually spent four or five weeks talking about history, good on you for for actually hanging through it with us. You know, if you've missed any of the last couple of weeks, I want to try and catch you up. So we're going to cover about 14 chapters of the book of Acts Acts is the Acts of the Apostles, right after the Gospels. We're going to cover about 14 chapters to get where we're going on this particular day. So I'll put a little outline there in your outline so you can follow along with us. This is basically what happens. The Ecclesia begins as a movement that actually moves. And in the first couple of weeks, thousands of people are saved and baptized in the powerful name of Jesus. The church begins to reach out in truth and love and boldness, and a reaction happens. Persecution breaks out against the church. People start figuring something out. If you're going to follow Jesus, there's a cost that comes with that. Last week, we saw the apostles. They were flogged, almost lost their lives for the sake of speaking the name of Jesus. Now we're going to jump over some stuff that we didn't even get a chance to cover. Stephen becomes the second martyr. He actually loses his life for the sake of speaking the name. And when Stephen is martyred in the early chapters of Acts, this guy named Saul shows up. Saul is a total punk. There's no other word for it, okay? He's a little guy with attitude, and he just starts making life miserable for the people of the way. And we find the Bible tells us that the very existence of the church is challenged by persecution. And we learn something. If you're going to be a part of a church, you're going to face challenges. It just comes with the territory. Our church has faced challenges in the past year. We've had some staff challenges. We've had some ministry challenges. And now, like every other church in Whatcom County, we face some economic challenges. I mean, they're not, just, they're not just ours. It's just kind of the way it is right now in the world. The good news about our challenges is this. After every challenge we've faced, no one has been fed to a lion and no one has been publicly crucified. That's the good news. I mean, none of those challenges, we don't face that kind of stuff. And I want to say all of that to remind us of something. Even our greatest challenges pale in comparison to what the first century church faced. And we would do well to remember that perspective. Saul persecutes the church and then is actually saved by Jesus. It's an amazing story. He changes his name to Paul. Paul actually switches teams and freaks out the original church because nobody believes his conversion is sincere. And then he goes out and starts preaching. He gets beat up too and the church goes, well, we're getting beat up too, so you must be one of us, okay? Paul begins his missionary efforts and the church begins to grow and expand rapidly in Acts 13 and 14. And then we're going to pick up the story. It's about 20 years later, okay? 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, 20 years after the original church forms, and the church is confronted by a question that's still being asked today. Who gets in? Who gets to be a part of this thing called church? And what do they have to do in order to become a part of the church? What do you got to do to get in to get your membership card? How do you have to act? You got to clean yourself up first. Are there rules to follow? Where's the bar? What's acceptable and what's not? And this is a crucial question because the church is still asking it today. Well, that question gets asked in the first century. 
One of the very first church business meetings. And the Bible gives us an early church answer. Now I'm going to warn you, okay? This answer is going to make some of you freak out. Some of you are going to get a little uncomfortable because the answer they come up with is going to make some of us squirm, especially if you're a guy, okay? Now I'm going to read it because it's in the Bible and I'm also going to say something. You don't get to send me a nasty email if you brought your kids to church tonight and what I'm going to talk about makes you a little bit uncomfortable because we have amazing places at Christ the King for your children and you should put them there. Just being straight. Unless, of course, you like answering extremely awkward questions in the car on the way home. Then if you do it, totally on you, all right? So, Adventureland, Fun Zone, CTK Kids, The Family Room, great places for your kids to be so you don't have to be awkward. Okay, here it comes, all right? This is what the Bible says, like it or not. And some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, which is really interesting because the Pharisees are the bad guys, some of them actually found Jesus, which is cool. And some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Okay, if you're a guy at this point, heaven or no heaven, you're out, okay? You know? You're sending your wife and your children to the new members class, but you are not walking in that place because this just scares you to death. Let me give you a modern translation. In order to be a part of the church, you have to have surgery and then follow 613 laws from the Old Testament. Don't you just want to sign up right now, you know? In order to get in here, you actually have to have surgery. I can see people just like, this is awesome. I'm so pumped. I mean, I'm probably going to get a t-shirt too. I mean, this is going to be amazing. Can you imagine inviting somebody to this movement for the very first time? Hey, welcome to church. We're so glad that you're here. Here's your medical forms and your waivers. And if we could take a copy of your insurance card, that would be great. Oh, and by the way, here's 613 accompanying rules that you're going to need to follow before you get your membership card. Can you imagine following that up? Oh, and always remember, there's always a place for you, right? <laughs> now, before you get all high and mighty and judge these folks for their entrance requirements, I just want to point something out to you, okay? The attitude that's happening here in the first century church happens in the modern church all the time. We just painted a different color. We don't demand a surgery we just do other things. We just demand that everybody looks like me, talks like me, acts like me, and does what I do because I'm a picture of what a good Christian looks like. And if you're not like me, you don't get to be in my little group. It's the same attitude. We don't mean to, to exclude people. And, it, and this is just so unbelievably subtle, but this is the message we sent. If you just go and clean yourself up just a little bit, then you can come back and reapply. And this creates a big problem. The problem is this. It's the reason why so many people just quit going to church. Because they just don't think they're ever going to get to the level of church people. So they never even have the courage to cross the threshold. If that's 
where you've been at some point, I'm just going to blow everybody's cover here at exactly the same time. Not one single person in this room or watching has it together. And anybody that says they do is in deep denial and needs professional therapy fast. Okay? Not one single person says they're on a higher level than anybody else. And I am so unbelievably glad that the church didn't decide to go with the convenient answer. Just have surgery, guys. Ladies, you're cool, but have surgery, guys. Follow 613 laws, and then you get to be a part of our great little group. Surgery plus rules equals acceptance. I am so glad somebody stood up in that first business meeting and went, whoa, 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 whoa. This is Peter's appeal. Trust Peter to stand up. Acts 15, verses 8 and 9, he says this. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them, meaning Gentiles, that's like us, non-Jewish people, by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us, the Jewish people, and them, the Gentile people, for he purified their hearts by faith. I love that Peter stands up and goes, whoa, 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 whoa. God knows the heart. The reality is, none of us knows anybody else's heart in this room. I mean, I don't know your heart. I just know how you act. I only know you by the exterior that you allow me to see. I know your attitude, your music, your ink, your hairstyle. And then I have to make a decision based on that, whether or not it looks Christian to me or not. And the Bible says this, man gets stuck looking at the outward appearance, but here's the cool thing about God. God just pushes all that stuff to the side and he looks on the heart. He doesn't give a, a rip about the outside of the package. He's just looking at the inside of the package. That's why some of us in some churches get caught in a mindset that's very, very subtle. I drew you a little diagram. This was my experience, okay? It goes like this. Some churches will say this, if you believe exactly what we believe, then you better behave. And if you behave, we'll consider allowing you to belong. I was blown away when I showed up in this place because they took that equation and just flipped it on its ear. They actually said this, hey, we're all messed up, so why don't you just come and belong? Just come and belong with the rest of us, we're good. Hang out with us a little bit and, and just know in your heart that our heart for you is that you will believe in Jesus because he saved our lives too. And we'll let Jesus work on that behavior part because we believe something about God. We believe that God can purify your heart before he fixes anything else. Do you understand that, church? God can purify your heart before he fixes your messed up marriage. God can purify your heart before he breaks that habit that's had a hold of you for just way, 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 way too long. God can purify your heart before he begins to change anything on the outside of you. Peter hits this one so hard and I love him for it. He's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let, let's keep this about the inside of a person's heart. Because that's the part God knows. So Peter stands up and objects. Yeah, whoa, surgery? 613 rules? No, whoa. Let's keep this about the heart. And then somebody else in the back of the room stands up. A guy by the name of James. The brother of Jesus. 
wouldn't you like to spend five minutes with James? I would just love to ask him a couple of questions. Like, come on, James. I mean, when Jesus hit his thumb with a hammer in the carpenter shop, come on, tell me the truth. What did he say, right? Come on. Come on, James, just tell me, did Jesus ever punch you when Joseph wasn't looking? You know, you're brothers. Come on, right? Just tell me the truth. I'd love to spend a couple of minutes with James. James, the brother of Jesus, stands up, and this is his appeal. He says this, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Hey guys, I know this business is really, really important, but did you hear what Peter said? Well, I'm just going to take it another step forward. Can we just not make this difficult for people, regular, ordinary people who are turning to God? I mean, if James thinks this is a big deal, it just makes me ask a question. How do we make it difficult for people who are turning to God? I mean, it's almost like a warning. How do we make it difficult? I just gave you some of my experiences here. I think we make it difficult for people when we create man-made rules and expectations that disqualify people. See, they just come walking through the door. It takes a lot of courage. And it's just like, hey, here's the hoops you got to jump through. You got to walk this way and talk this way. And if you don't, you know, you're not in. And if you've been coming to church for a while, you knows how this works. If you ever walked into a church and somebody gives you the scan from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet and you know you're being assessed as to whether or not you fit in or whether you need to get out. This is a very human thing. And in the reality, this is really what we're saying when we create man-made rules and expectations. We're saying this. We love the fact that God had room in his circle for us to step inside of. What makes us uncomfortable is when we get inside there and somebody else tries to get in there with us, we just aren't really comfortable with that because we've got room in our hearts for God's heart for us, just not for anybody else because they're going to mess up my pretty little circle. You know where that comes from? It comes from this next statement. We forget the price that Jesus paid to save us. Isn't it amazing how we as people, we can pinpoint the dysfunction in somebody else's life, but oh, how quickly we forget the mess that God had to drag us out of. Don't ever forget what it took for Jesus to save you. Thirdly, we make it difficult for people who are turning to God by, 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 by reinforcing the idea of us and them. I love what Peter says here. He says, you know, as far as the Gentiles go, he says God didn't create a distinction between us, the Jewish people, and them, the Gentile people. In our modern world, this is what it means. It means this is not church versus sinners. We don't get to play that game because got news for you. We're all sinners. It's not church versus sinners. It means this. It's not us versus them. It's us for them. Can I get an amen from somebody? I feel like I'm working all by myself up here. It's not us versus them. It's us for them. That's the reason we're here. Those of us who've actually tasted the beauty of the salvation of God now have an opportunity to give it away. Blessed are you who have received it. Now blessed be you who give. Here's the last one. We make it difficult for people when we exchange grace for law because it's cleaner and easier on those inside the church. Church is just easier when it's all about policies and forms. You know? 
We want to legislate a policy because it's easier than having a conversation with a messy person that God died for. Let me share with you a painful example from my own life. If you've been around CTK before, you've heard this story before. Before I got hired at my first church in Manitoba in Canada, I was asked to submit some positional papers on social issues. One of my papers was entitled this, Why Divorced People Should Remain Silent in the Church. Stick with me now. See, at that time, I had a rule in my head that because you were divorced, you were just a little too messy for the rest of us. So you could come and sit, but you didn't get to say anything or do anything because you had disqualified yourself. That's what I believed. I even had verses to back up my position. Well, they actually gave me a job. Not exactly sure why. But in my first year, I met a young man named Reed Townsend. Reed was one of the most amazing middle school workers that I've ever met anywhere. This kid was the Pied Piper of middle school kids. We worked together side by side for a year, and then one day he said, I need to take you out for lunch, Grant. So we went out for lunch, and he told me a heartbreaking story of how he had come to Jesus, how his life had changed, and then because of the changes he had made, his wife had left him. And he found himself alone with a beautiful little boy named Benjamin. And all of a sudden, I had a problem because I had a paper that put Reed in a nice, tidy little box of categories. Just took care of the whole thing. And my nice, tidy little box of rules, it did a ton for me, but it didn't do anything for my friend. I remember just sitting there stunned at what he was telling me. I remember racing back to the church and stomping down the hallway to Pastor Jim Scobie's office and closing the door and turn around and looking at that little Scottish man and saying, you knew. You knew Reed's story and you knew what I gave you before I got this job. You knew and you hired me anyway. And Jim, with his beautiful Scottish accent, said, Grant, why don't you sit down? <laughs> and he gave me this lecture. Grant, there are two camps. One called grace and the other called law. And before you leave my office today, you will pick which camp you're in. I will tell you, the camp of law is easier. It's all checkboxes and forms. You never need to have a conversation because people are either in or they're out. Grace is messy. It's hard sometimes when you meet someone whose broken life doesn't fit in your tidy little category and you're going to be uncomfortable and legalists are going to call you a sellout. But if you choose grace, Jesus will call you a man after his own grace-filled heart. So Grant, before you pick one more thing, aren't you glad God chose grace when it came to you? Just so you know, I picked grace. 
And I picked Reed. Because Jesus picked Reed. And just in case you're ever wondering, this is a grace church, and the day it becomes a law church, I quit. So if this is always going to be a grace church where messy is just kind of assumed, I think there are three simple decisions we've got to make as a church. Number one is this. We have to be bold in our inclusion of people who are far from God. We have to intentionally choose to focus on people who are on the outside when the normal gravitational pull of every church is to focus on those of us who are already here. Because that's the way it works. We say we love people on the outside of the church, but we end up focusing on the people who are inside, the people who pay the bills, who do the serving, who make the coffee. I mean, we just say, let's just look after them. Don't believe me? What's the old saying? The squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? Here's what I know. People that are outside of here, they don't squeak. Ever. They don't squeak. Only people in here squeak. Now sometimes squeaking is warranted. If I get up here next weekend and say, I've found another revelation of Jesus Christ, you better squeak. Loud. Loud. I mean, it's good to squeak about the right thing. Just make sure it's the right thing. But our focus is just, it's just a normal gravitational pull to get the arrows pointed in. I love the fact that Jesus taught us how to do this right. Because the Bible tells us in the Gospels, Jesus has got his tidy little inner circle of guys walking around. And they're all good. Like, you know, we're good. I'm good. It's all perfect. And then he goes and messes it up by calling a guy by the name of Matthew. Matthew's a tax collector. Ugh. You can't have a tax collector. And yet Jesus says to a tax collector, worst reputation in this culture. Hey, Matthew, come and follow me. Come and belong. Believe in me. We'll take care of all of your nasty tax collectedness later. You just come along for the ride. A little bit later in the Gospels, Jesus does it again. A woman is caught in adultery, and this group of guys, this self-righteous group of religious people, come and throw her in front of Jesus. And he basically says to this group of people, not to her, to this group of people, go stone yourself. I like that. Just deals with it straight up. Go stone yourself, right? And then he says this to her. I don't condemn you. That's grace. Now go and sin no more. That's truth. And Jesus loved her enough to say both ends of the conversation. If we're going to be a grace church, we have got to learn to keep the arrows pointed out. Freely you have received. Freely give. Secondly, we need to make this decision. If we're going to make a mistake, we've got to err on the side of grace. Now it means let's have the tough conversation. Let's embrace the mess knowing that's what Jesus did with us. Let's be gracious and grace-filled as we embody grace and truth. It still means we're going to have hard conversations with people. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but God actually does have standards. He wants His people to be holy and righteous He wants us to shine like a light in a dark world. He wants us to be like salt that seasons every conversation we have. He wants us to be bold. 
But if we're ever going to make a mistake in being bold, we've got to err on the side of grace. And thirdly, we've got to refuse to protect our past at the cost of advancing into God's future. A couple of summers ago, I got to take a study break to Southern California. And uh, on that trip, a friend of mine called and I said, you know, it's really kind of weird, but from the hotel that I'm staying in, I, I can actually see the top of a very, very famous church. And he said, yeah, I've actually got a friend at that church. Would you like to take a tour? I said, I'd love to. Once upon a time, this church was cutting edge. They've been in the news a lot lately because they just declared bankruptcy. Southern California. Don't judge them. In fact, it breaks my heart to hear that. And we should probably pray for them. But my friend called and said, would you like to take a tour? And I said, I'd love to. So I walked over and my tour guide took me for a walk around their grounds. And he kept using a word that cut me to the center of my being every time he said it. The word was museum. This was the first ever drive-in church. People actually drove in here and did something they've never done before. They parked their car and they listened to our pastor who walked in and out of the building, inside and outside. It was amazing. But now this building is a museum. This is our crystal prayer tower. At one time, it was filled 24-7 with people that were praying for our ministry. But now, it's a museum. And every time he said it, it just cut me to the core. Because you see, at that time in our history as a church, we were actually reaching record numbers of people on weekends, but I couldn't sleep. The building was packed, but I couldn't sleep because I just felt something in the bottom of my gut. And I just only have one opinion, but I just felt something was off. In my opinion, it just kind of felt like we lost our edge when it came to welcoming the messiest and the most broken and the most addicted. It, it just kind of felt like they, they just kind of slipped back out the front door again. And I started looking around and I said, man, it just seems like we're kind of playing it safe and, and we're relying on programs to do the work for us. And, and church right now just kind of feels like something we just slip in between Starbucks and Costco. And I was dying on the inside because I just kept saying to myself, God, what is going on? Isn't this the way it should be? It's big. But God kept saying this, to whom much has been given, much will be required. The arrows got pointed in. And all I could hear and all I could see as I wandered through this building was a sign being added to the one on the front. Christ the King Community Church Museum. No. 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 
And see, if we wanted to, it could become really, really easy for us just to protect this building. Because now we got a building, right? Got to make sure we pay the mortgage on the building, Grant. We got to keep people happy. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to pay for the mortgage on the building. And then what are we going to do? I want to remind you of something. The church was never a building. It was a people. A people on a mission for God. And the day this becomes about a building and we don't take a spiritual risk in order to pay for the building, then we need to get rid of the building and meet in the parking lot like they used to. Now, are we blessed with this? Thank you, Jesus, for heat, lights, and warmth, and comfortable seats, and cup holders for coffee. Thank you, Jesus, for that. I believe we've got to resist every day the gravitational pull to play it safe when God keeps calling us just to risk it all in the name of Jesus. And I tell you what, we could protect everything that we've ever done before, but the second we start doing that, we miss out on the greatest future that Christ the King has ever had. Because here's what we know. There are a limitless number of lost, unsaved people who need Jesus right outside our front door. And the answer to that problem is for God's people to be bold and risk it all until the day we die. If we don't, you know what we're going to leave behind? We're not going to leave a movement behind. We're going to leave a museum. And they're going to talk about us just like they talk about how this used to be a best building. Remember Jaffco? Those were the days. The church was never a building. It was a grace-filled emergency room. Messy with blood and pain that gave people hope. Forgiveness for the past. Hope for the future. Let's pray. Father God, would you teach us what the first century church knew? That when they were asked to give everything that they did and it was worth it. Father, may we be a grace-filled gathering of believers who are on the mission of Jesus Christ and may we never become so selfish and so self-centered that all of the arrows point in. Lord, we welcome the challenges because we believe that's the refining and the pruning that we need in order to be more effective. It's not easy, but you are stronger. Father, break our hearts to those unsaved neighbors and friends that you've placed all around us. Allow us to be bold. Allow us to embody grace and truth. And God, may it never ever be about us. May it be about you and the glory of your name. God, make us bold. Keep the arrows out. Because it is our judgment that we should not make it difficult for those who are turning 
to God. And the church, in agreement with the statement of James, agreed together with all of their heart and said, Amen. All right, I'm talking about the past. Next week, we start talking about the future. And we're going to put Jesus right in the middle of it. I can't wait, but I'm freaked out, so you better pray. All right? So we're going to continue in our worship. We're not done. We're going to respond to God's call to be a grace-filled, worshiping church. And we're going to do that by giving back to God our tithes and our offerings. And if you're a guest, I want you to do me a favor. Just be a guest of Christ the King. Let the offering go right past you. We don't want anything from you at all. If you're visiting with us, we are so honored that you'd come and spend a Saturday night with us. Hope you'll come back and see us again really, really soon. But the ushers are going to start in the back, work their way towards the front. When the offering's passed you by, we're going to stand, continue in our worship by giving back to God. And then we're going to give ourselves back to God by singing. We're going to respond. Open our mouth. Bible doesn't say anything about music. It says make a joyful noise. So just noise away, all right? First song you're not going to be too familiar with. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to ask God what he wants you to do with what you've heard. And then we're going to join together with the angels in heaven. And we're going to sing the last song that simply says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is, and is to come. God bless you, Christ the King. Have a good week.